Okay, let's turn our attention now to God's Word in the book of Ruth. If you are new with us this morning, first of all, welcome. Really glad that you're with us. My name is Derek, and uh, we are in the middle of uh, a sermon series on the book of Ruth. Ruth is a, a great story in the Old Testament about God's love and kindness as he has shown through his redeemer, Boaz, to a young woman named Ruth. And we're going to get to to read chapter 3 together today, this morning. So if you've got a Bible, you can follow along or you can follow along on the screen above. This is Ruth chapter 3. Then Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her. He went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. And she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and he turned over. And behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after the young men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do this, do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight, and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if not, if he's not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she laid his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said to her, bring the garment that you're wearing and hold it out. So she held it and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on, put it on her. And then she went into the city. And when she had come into her mother-in-law's house, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? And then Ruth told her all that the man had done for her saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're grateful for your word today. We're grateful for the way that you have shown your love and kindness to Ruth through Boaz, and we're grateful for the way that you have shown your love and kindness to us. It is exhibited even here in the words that you have given us. So we pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes and our ears and soften our hearts, that we might know you more deeply today, and in knowing you, might follow you more fully. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, If you are... um, especially probably if you are a male around my age, you probably remember what was, when I was a kid, my favorite series of books. Uh, They were the Choose Your Own Adventure books. Anybody remember those? Really fantastic concepts. So these um, these were like video games on paper because they were the first like 
really interactive books. The book was set up where, where there was not just one storyline, but multiple storylines. So you might be reading and you come to the end of the chapter, and at the end of the chapter, there's a choice. And it says, you know, if you want to go into this canyon and pursue this guy who's running away, go to page 51. If you want to turn to the left and go the other way, turn to page 42. And you would choose what you wanted to do, and you'd follow these different lines. And it was amazing. And you were like the hero of the story. It was always written in second person. So you were the hero. You got to make all the decisions. You got to do all the stuff. It was very empowering for a third, year old, uh, third grade boy. But it's also a, a, little, uh, a little scary. It's, it's a little unsettling. When you're the one making all of the decisions, things can get a little frightening, can't they? Because making decisions isn't always easy. I talked to a friend this week who was going to have a very important conversation with his brother. They were at odds. And he wasn't exactly sure what this conversation was going to hold. And he wasn't exactly sure what to say. And he wasn't exactly sure how to respond. And he didn't know what was going to happen. And he was just asking for prayer. I have a similar situation actually going on in my life where two people that I love are at odds with each other. And I'm trying to figure out, what's my part in this? Should I call one of them? How do I stimulate them getting together? Where am I going over the line? Where am I actually not doing enough? I'm not totally sure. What's my role? I I don't really know. Maybe you've kind of had some similar questions, similar thoughts, similar situations. Like, um, we don't love the way that my parents interact with our children. What do we do? We wish they were more interactive. We wish, we wish maybe they were more proactive and they're not. Are we supposed to say something? Should we just let them be? Should we enter? Should we not? Should we take risks? Should we wait? What do we do? A former pastor of mine used to say in situations like this, he would say, well, this sounds like an opportunity to rely on the Lord. And what he meant was, I don't have anything to tell you right now. So you're going to have to figure this out by relying on the Lord. But the truth is, that's exactly the kind of situations that we're often in. That we have an opportunity, and that is true, we have an opportunity to trust. We have an opportunity to enter into a messy situation. We have an opportunity to enter into a confusing situation. We have an opportunity to enter into times that are not really clear and trust the Lord and rely on him. So what does it look like to rely on the Lord? What does it look like to engage in trusting the Lord in the difficult decisions of our lives, in the everyday workings of our normal lives? What does it look like to cling in reliance to the Lord? We get a really good picture of that, I think, in Ruth chapter 3. And I'm just going to say this up front. Reading Ruth chapter 3 is kind of an exercise in relying on the Lord. Because it can be a bit of a confusing passage sometimes. In fact, the more that I read this, the more that I think, I'm just going to have to trust the Lord in all of this. Because it can be kind of confusing. But I think we actually get a great picture of what is oftentimes the case in these kind of situations. And what it means to rely on the Lord. And here's the first thing I think that we see in Ruth 3 about relying on the Lord. Is this, is that sometimes relying on the Lord means taking risks. Sometimes relying on the Lord means being a bit risky in what we do, stepping out of our comfort zone, taking some risks. Every character in this story 
is in a risky situation. Naomi takes risks. If you remember from chapter two, kind of where we left them, Ruth had gone out to glean in Boaz's fields and he had given her uh, an abundance of barley and of grain. And Ruth had come back and she had given all that to Naomi and they were actually well cared for. And so although they were in a destitute situation, they're, they're in a bad situation for sure, but Boaz was actually caring for them. And so they had been fed, and it looks like they were going to be continue, continue to be fed, and Naomi comes up with this incredibly risky proposal that could have messed all of it up. It could have actually been the thing that kind of blew up this good thing that they had going. Naomi comes up with this proposal for Ruth to go and do something that honestly at the time would have been considered kind of absurd. And then, of course, Ru- of course Ruth is also in a really risky situation. Here's Naomi's plan. She says, Ruth, first of all, take a shower. Nobody likes a stinky girl, right? And then put on some makeup. That's kind of what anoint yourself means. Get yourself looking a little bit better. And then put on your cloak. And maybe if you've got an NIV in front of you, or depending on what translation you have, it may say something like, put on your best clothes. Actually, I don't think that's what that word is. The word that's used for cloak is a normal word for the normal clothing that normal people would have worn. So why would Naomi say, put on your regular clothes? Well, it's because Ruth was probably wearing morning clothes. Not morning like not evening, but morning like crying. She was a widow. And in that time and that culture, you would mark your state of mourning, you would mark your widowhood by what you wore. It was a signal to everybody that said, I'm in mourning right now, stay back, give me some space, especially if you were a young woman, it signaled to all the men, don't come around, I'm not ready. And what, Ruth, what Naomi says to Ruth is, take off your mourning clothes, take off your widow clothes, and put back on your regular clothes. Because that was a signal too. That was a signal that said, I'm kind of back on the market. It was a signal to everybody around that the time of mourning was over. It was really opening herself up in an honest way that kind of put herself out there in a very risky kind of situation. I mean, being honest with people is always risky, isn't it? Being transparent, opening ourselves up to people around us is always a little risky. They could hurt us. There's even more risk, of course, going on for Ruth. The plan involves her going out to the field outside of the city to the threshing floor at night. So that puts her at some physical risk. She could be attacked. Also, she shows up at night where a bunch of men have been working and where the particular man that she's going to go talk to is sleeping. And she shows up at night dressed kind of regular in this place where people are sleeping. That's kind of what prostitutes did kind of risky that she could have been misinterpreted as a prostitute. And then she does the most risky thing of all. She asks Boaz to marry her. Now, maybe you didn't catch that in the text, but that's actually what's going on. She says, as she lays down before him when he wakes up at midnight, she says, spread your wings over me for you are a redeemer. Now, maybe you remember also that awesome connection from the last chapter where Boaz actually says that to Ruth. He says, you have come to take shelter under the Lord's wings. 
And there's that beautiful connection of the Lord's provision in all of this. But there's another connection too, is that the Hebrew word for wings is also the same word for cloak. So she's saying to him, spread your cloak over me, spread your blanket over me. It's an act of protection and provision and of intimacy. She is saying what would have been understood in that time in that culture as marry me, take care of me, provide for me, cover me with your love and your protection. Now, if you've ever proposed to anybody, whether man or woman, you know that's a scary situation. It's risky. But you know, Naomi and Ruth are not the only ones taking risk either. Boaz is taking a lot of risk in this as well. Remember who Ruth is? She's a Moabite. She's a foreigner, not just a foreigner, but she's actually a foreigner who would not have had a great name associated with, with, with Moab, with her. So marrying a Moabite would not have been the most, you know, like, it would not have been the, the, the culture-climbing kind of marriage. This would not have given him more cultural power. It actually probably would have been looked down upon. So Boaz is also taking a lot of risk in agreeing to marry Ruth. And this is so helpful, instructive for us, I think, because when it comes to the times, especially in our lives that are confusing, or we have big decisions to make, or where we're overcome with sadness, most of the time, our tendency, I think, at least mine is, is to tend toward self-protection. I want to figure out how I can protect myself. How do I keep myself from getting hurt? Or how do I keep myself from landing in a situation where I'm not going to know what's next? Or how do I keep myself from, you know, feeling like maybe I'm a little bit out there or feeling too vulnerable? How do I protect myself? That's usually what I'm thinking of. But you know, in the Bible, all throughout the Bible, we are almost always called to wisdom, to make wise decisions, to make wise choices, but almost never called to self-protection. We are always come, we're always called to come and shelter under God's wings for protection rather than protecting ourselves. So how do, you, how do you walk by faith in life? How do you rely on the Lord? How do you trust in the Lord in difficult situations? Well, here's one big piece of it, is that a lot of times that will involve taking some risks. But there's also a second side to that, and it's that sometimes walking with the Lord, relying on the Lord involves waiting, sitting tight, not taking risks, but actually just staying put. I love the way that kind of the story ends here where Ruth comes back to Naomi and she basically says, that was a weird plan, but guess what? It worked and uh, things are kind of going well. And then she says, what should I do next? And Naomi's response is great because I would have kind of expected Naomi to say probably what we would have said, which is, girl, make it happen, right? Pounce, now's the time, seize the day. Take control and let's close this deal and make it happen so that we can make sure everything is okay. But she says just the opposite. She says, wait. Just sit and wait and be patient. Boaz does the same thing. When Ruth comes and she says, spread your wings over me, you can tell clearly he is, uh, he, he, he is honored Clearly, he has the means to help her, and he wants to help her, and he knows he can. Clearly, it is his desire to marry Ruth. But what does he say? Wait. I got to take care of some things first. 
I got to make sure that we do this the right way. So wait and hold on. I mean, how hard is that for us to wait on the Lord? Maybe that's the thing that can feel the riskiest is to wait. I read the other day about um, these changes um, a few years ago at the Houston Intercontinental Airport. And they, they, were getting, they were getting tons of complaints about how long it took to get baggage from the baggage claim. Passengers were saying, listen, we're waiting forever to get our bags off baggage claims, and they were just getting all these complaints. So the, the executives at the airport uh, did a bunch of work. They looked over it. They kind of tightened up their process, and they actually got it down where they could get the bags from the planes that arrived to the baggage claim and down onto the chute in eight minutes, which was, was industry-leading. Uh, it was at, at the top or above the top of any airport in the country, an eight-minute turn from that. But they still kept getting complaints. People still kept complaining about the wait time for the baggage claim. And so a couple of the executives figured something out. They said, you know what? It's not actually the time that it takes for us to get the bags from the planes to the baggage claim. It's actually the time that it takes for the people to walk from the plane to the baggage claim that's the time because there was only a one-minute walk from the gate to the baggage claim. And so here's these people that have just spent only a minute walking to baggage claim, and now they got to sit there for seven more minutes wondering when their bag is going to come. So they actually did something kind of crazy. They moved the gates further away so that it took the people longer to walk to the baggage claim. So when they got there, like, hey, my bag's here, and everybody was happy, no more complaints. Well, what they had actually tapped into, I think, was a very common human problem. And that is that we think if we're not working, nobody's working. If we're not doing something, then I guess nothing's happening. If I'm not actively engaged in doing something, if I've got to wait for something, then I guess nothing is actually happening in the world. And of course, the truth, especially for Christians, we know that the Lord is always working. The difficult time for us is that when we stop and we wait, we have to wrestle with that fact that God has not stopped. He has not checked out. He has not decided to take a lunch break. He is working continuously, and we read even in the Bible that he's working continuously for our good and for his glory. God is at work, but it's hard for us to wait, isn't it? Henry Nouwen, the author and, and Catholic priest, wrote this story of some friends he had. They were, a tra they were trapeze artists. And they would tell him about what it's like to have two people, you know, on the trapeze. And there's, there's one person who's, who's the flyer. They're the person who lets go of the trapeze. And there's the catcher, the person who catches them. And they said, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a very particular dynamic that's very important in this process. And it's that the flyer, once they let go of that trapeze, their one job is to be completely still and do nothing and wait. And it's the job of the catcher to catch them. Because if the flyer tries to do the catching, it will mess the whole thing up and put everybody in danger. The Lord calls us to walk by faith. The Lord calls us to rely on Him. The Lord calls us to cling to Him and trust. And He calls us oftentimes to wait as we're doing that. I think that can be the hardest maybe when we're in the position of Boaz. I mean, think about this for a second. Boaz has the power. He has the ability. 
He has the means. He can actually help somebody, and she has come to him for help. And the tendency that we have oftentimes is that when we show up and we know we can help, we want to intercede immediately. If I'm the person in the room that has the most knowledge or the most ability, my feeling is, well, shoot, I should just go ahead and insert myself into every situation because people need me, don't they? I should make everything right. And it is the hardest in those times to wait. To Instead of asking the question, what kind of good could I do, which is not a bad question, to ask the question instead, what's my role here? What is God calling me to? The the. the psychologist and therapist Diane Langberg, who does a ton of work uh, in areas of, of trauma and, and, and works with, with people, especially all over the world, who have been truly traumatized. She, she said one time when I was listening to her uh, give a speech, she said, you know, the, the need is not the call. We can understand the need and still understand that that's not the thing that I'm called to, and that's hard sometimes. It's hard sometimes to wait on the Lord and to ask that question, What's my role? What's my place? What part do I play? Rather than how can I get in and fix everything that's broken? All right, so there's one is that sometimes relying on the Lord means taking risks. The flip side of that is sometimes relying on the Lord means sitting tight. How about this third one? Is that most of the time, the situation is probably going to be messy. I mean, Ruth 3 is kind of a messy situation. We start with two women who are in a destitute position for the most part. They're both widows. They're poor. They don't really have much of an idea of how God is going to care for them. And then we enter into what's oftentimes a messy situation all over. Like the more that I read this passage, the more that I'm sometimes confused by it. Because sometimes it looks like everybody's acting appropriately. Sometimes it looks like people are maybe uh, doing too much. Even though I don't think that any of the characters act in any inappropriate way to one another, clearly there's sexual tension all over the place, isn't there? It can be confusing. It's messy. You're not totally sure what's going on. Boaz isn't sure if he's the one who's supposed to be doing things. He's got to wait. Ruth has put herself way out there in crazy ways. Naomi has got this crazy plan that may or may not work. It's kind of a mess. But of course, isn't life always a mess? I mean, we live in a world that's broken by sin. We live in a world where there are big messes like wars and famines and terrible things where people die. And we live in a small world in ourselves where tragedy happens in our own families, in our own persons, where we experience loss, where we experience sadness, where we experience confusion, where we experience, I'm not really sure what to do now, where there's not clarity in everything. Life is messy. I talked to my brother-in-law this week, and he said that just this week they found out that there is a five-year-old boy in their daughter's preschool class, five-year-old in preschool, and this boy they found out this week is actually biologically a girl. Found it out in just a a casual conversation with the mom that my sister-in-law was having. And she mentioned that, that, that this girl started transitioning a year and a half ago. And yeah, if you're doing the math, that's at three and a half years old. What do you do in, in situations like that? What do, you, what do you do? Not just what do you think about the concept, but how do you act? What does it mean to love those parents? What does it look like to love that child? What does it look like to even try and introduce them to Jesus in some way? 
What does it look like to love your own child in that situation? What does it look like to make schooling decisions for your children? There are lots of questions and not very many really clear answers. Life's messy, isn't it? But here's the great hope, friends. Here's the reason why we can walk by faith. Here's the reason why we can rely on the Lord, and it's this, is that our Redeemer is always kind. That word keeps coming up in this passage, Redeemer. Ruth says, spread your wings over me, Boaz, because you're a Redeemer. He says later, it's true, I'm a redeemer, but there's a redeemer that's closer than that. And if he wants to redeem you, great. If not, I'll redeem you. What in the world is going on and what is he talking about? Well, there is a set of laws actually in the Old Testament that are laws about redemption. And here's kind of how they went. They're really set up for circumstances like this. Let's say a man dies and he has no children, no heirs. Well, usually that man would own land. That was the way that they were provided for. They would till the fields, and that's how they got their food and, their, and their, their livelihood. But if you have died and you have no children, there's nobody to inherit the land, what happens to the land? It either kind of goes fallow or it gets sold. And so God had actually written these laws that somebody within the clan, within the broader family unit, could come and buy that land back for the family so that it didn't fall into other hands, so that the family had a lineage so that they were protected and cared for for a long time. And even more of a responsibility, if that man had a widow, then in inheriting the land and in taking the land, you would actually inherit his wife as well. And the idea was that here's this widow who has no protection for her, who has no husband to provide. I am going to provide and I'm going to make things whole for her. Furthermore, if you were going to have kids, oftentimes what would be required is that those children will be raised up under the name of the former husband rather than the current husband so that that person's name could be carried on, so that their line could continue, so that they would have land and provision and family forever. It was God saying, okay, let's take what has been broken, what has been lost, and we will restore it to wholeness. It was a process of restoration and renewal, taking something that had been lost or broken and making things right, making things whole, redeeming them. So there was a standard, there were laws that enabled God's people to do that for one another. But it even gets bigger, this concept. Because if you remember the song we sang earlier today, based on uh, Isaiah 43, uh, I am the Lord, I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, you are mine. Again, Isaiah 43 is written actually in the context of Israel going to exile in Babylon. And here's God saying, I'm going to do for you as a country, as a people, as my people, the same way that I've called you to do for individual families. I'm going to take what's lost, what's broken, what is bad and actually make it whole again. I'm going to bring you back into wholeness. I'm going to restore you. I'm going to redeem you. God does that for his people. But of course, we see in the New Testament, the writers of the New Testament pick up on Jesus's role as the redeemer, not just for his people as a whole, but also for us individually. Listen to Galatians 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, 
to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Friends, what the Bible proclaims is that what is broken in us is more than just losing a spouse, as terrible as that is. What is broken in us is more than just losing our land. What is broken in us is more than just losing our country or our place or our people. What is broken in us is losing our relationship to our creator because of our sin. And what Jesus has done is he has come to restore what is broken. He has come to restore and renew and redeem the lost. We have wandered on our own, and Jesus has come to take us back, to redeem us as his own, to give us wholeness and fullness and life together with God through him. Jesus has called us, (laughs) we read this all throughout the New Testament, to take off our mourning clothes, to come boldly before him because he has covered us with his wings. He has covered us with his cloak. He has covered us with his righteousness. He has covered us completely and he said, I am marrying myself to you. And whenever you proclaim that, that incredible actually proclamation of faith that Ruth does there when she says, Boaz, spread your wings over me for you are a redeemer. That is actually what we are called to say to the Lord. Jesus, spread your wings over me, for you are my redeemer, and you are the only one. And friends, whenever we cry out with that, whatever situation you are in, whenever we cry out to the Lord to spread his wings over us, he always acts in kindness. Remember that word we've been talking about for the last three weeks? Hesed, loving kindness covenant faithfulness, God's love toward his people that is poured out to them. We see it actually in this chapter spoken of about Ruth's actions, but we see it throughout the book of Ruth and throughout the entirety of the Bible as a description of how God acts to his people. Our Redeemer is kind. (laughs) And even when it's risky, even when we have to wait, God is calling us to come and to to find our covering under his wings, under his protection, under his love and kindness. Will you pray that God enables us to do that even now? Let's pray. Kind Father, Redeemer King, Lord, we are not the heroes of our own stories. As tempting as that sounds to desire, we are not the heroes. You are. And you, our hero redeemer, have come to cover us with your wings, to cover us with your cloak, to cover us with your kindness and your righteousness. We are truly, Lord, as we have sung, found in you. Lord, let us live out of that truth today and tomorrow and every day. Let us proclaim it in all that we do and say and all that we think and all that we know. We pray it all in the name of Christ. Amen.